series last week on Vision 2019. Uh, this was the part of the year that I love, just to kind of speak about what I believe God is laying on my heart as your pastor and for the leadership of our church, where we're moving in 2019. And we kicked it off last week by talking about leaving no generation behind, that every generation is important to the body of Christ. And we talked about the fact that we do have an underrepresented generation. Uh, and those are now currently young marrieds, young families, somewhere in that 25 to 34-year-old range. Um, we are not where we need to be. And so our goal was that through our ministries and our focus that this year we see by 2020, 20% of our church in that 25 to 34-year-old range. And so we're, we're praying about, hey, Lord, how can we engage? Um, because the challenge with that age group is, you know, many of them have uh, left the church just because they didn't feel like it was an essential part of their life. And we have not equipped them to navigate through some of the things that now their young adult life brings. And we want to make sure that we can connect with them. So we'll be praying for creativity about how we can do that. Uh, but today I want to talk about a way you can be a part of not only that, that vision of reaching younger families, but advancing really the mission of Christ in our world. But there was a man that one day visited a church and he liked it. And a couple of weeks into it, he went and talked to the pastor and he said, Pastor, I, I want to become a member of your church. And every pastor loves to hear those kinds of words because that means he's committed, he's going to serve, he's going to faithfully give, he's going to be a part of advancing the mission of the church. And so the pastor began talking about, you know, how great it is you want to become a member. Here are some things that you need to know as a member. And part of it was about serving in the church. And the guy said, oh, Pastor, I don't have time to serve. I'm a very busy businessman. Um, I'll attend faithfully. I'll give, but I really have no time to serve. Uh, so don't ask me to serve the kids or the youth or, or to do anything in the church because I'm just way too busy, but I will commit to come faithfully and, and listen to your teaching and to faithfully support what you're doing. And the pastor looked across the, the coffee table at him and said, well, I think you're at the wrong church. And I think the church you're looking for is uh, three blocks down to the right. So the man kind of looks confused and leaves the meeting, drives three blocks down the road, looks to the right, and he sees an abandoned church building that was closed, no longer functioning as a place of worship, no longer functioning as a mission house to their community, and the minister's point was well made. You know, there's a certain rule that most churches experience called the Pareto Principle, and it's basically this, that 20% of the church does 80% of the work. And that applies to giving, that applies to ministry. And uh, when we began to look at numbers of those who serve Neighborhood Church, and again, thank you for faithfully kind of helping us out with, with making sure our database is accurate and, and we're getting uh, that more fine-tuned. Here's what we do know. There's 487 regular attenders and members of our church, which is great. We thank the Lord for the growth that we've been seeing. 144 of those serve which means that we have about 30% of our church currently serving in some capacity to advance the mission of Christ in our church building and in our community. So we're actually on a better edge than the 20%. So everybody says, yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's great. But here's the deal. We're at a point as a church, especially as we're growing and especially as we're wanting to engage all generations, that we are needing more people to catch vision for what we're doing as a church. So... 
last, actually two years ago now, back in 2017, when we went to two services, part of my challenge to you, uh, remember the time we came at only 10 o'clock? Anybody remember that? It was just 10 o'clock. And if you were serving in kids' ministry that day, you, you, that was what you did. And the beauty of two services was, and what I challenged you with is, here's the idea. Attend one and then serve the other service. So what a great opportunity. You come on one Sunday, you attend, you minister, you worship, you get all those things, and then you go and serve. The reality is we saw a very small percentage of people take on the attend one, serve one. And so today I just want to challenge us um, as a church that for us to be effective, for us to grow the way God wants us to do it, and I'm not, I'm not about number growth, I'm about growing healthy, growing in mission, growing in the ways that we need to grow. The key to that is that you find your place and you do your part. That you find your place and do your part. Paul wrote a letter to a church at Ephesus. And this was a pretty young church because Paul had been busy planting churches and spreading the good news. And so he would establish in these communities gatherings of people who would hear about Jesus. And then he would begin to train leaders who would then plant a church with Paul. And he would often have to write letters back to these churches to encourage them or bring correction. And so he writes this letter to, in Ephesians and he addresses basically what, what God's design is for ministry within the church context. How is your church that has been recently planted in Ephesus, how is it going to grow to become effective for God's mission? So he speaks into that, and he speaks especially to the responsibility that's placed before every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus. So here's the big idea, and then we're going to kind of unpack it, so, and we'll go to Ephesians 4 to do that. But here's the, here's the thing. The church grows healthy and effective when you find your place, and do your part within its mission. Okay, so this is how churches grow. It's not on the personality of a pastor. It's not on the worship style. Those are elements, but the way a church actually grows and becomes healthy and effective is through you finding your place and doing your part within its mission. And the mission of the church never changes. We are here to make disciples of Jesus, which means that people would discover the hope of Christ and then know how to grow in him and then how to serve in his missions. That, that's never going to change. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 4 on your smart devices. There's notes available through the Bible app, our website, through the Bible, sorry, through our church app if you haven't got that yet. There's various ways to get notes, but I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 4 because this is that part of the letter where Paul breaks it down for the church. He's burdened for this church plant to grow. They've been doing well, but he has to give them some direction as they were growing. And I think it's still some direction we need today at Neighborhood Church to become all that God wants us to be. And so Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he begins by saying this, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you. Now, why would he start? Why would he start with saying, as a prisoner of the Lord? I mean, why wouldn't he start by saying, as the apostle of Christ Jesus, you know, the, the one who planted your church, the one who was your daddy, so to speak, right? Why would he say, as a prisoner for the Lord? What he's doing is he's starting by giving us all a position to assume, a position to assume. When we come into God's mission, when we come into the body of Christ, there is a position that we are to assume. And the position is what Paul is speaking from, as a prisoner for the Lord. Now, what we do know about Paul is he actually was 
a prisoner, okay? At the time of writing this letter, he actually physically was a prisoner. Why was he a prisoner? It wasn't because he had a bad habit doing drugs. It wasn't because he stole from the church. He was in prison because it was illegal within the Roman Empire to preach Jesus, and especially among the Jews who wanted to stop the, the, the church from growing. And so he finds himself in prison because of his faith, because he loved. In fact, he, he told Timothy this way in a letter he wrote to Timothy while he also was in prison. He says this, so do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. So he kind of ties those two together. The reason he's a prisoner is because of his testimony to the Lord, but rather join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, here's my question for you. As followers of Jesus who have been benefited by the gospel, okay, you're saved, that's the gospel. The question is, how have you suffered for the gospel? What, what in America has it cost you? Now, I know that the message of Christ, his grace, that is free. That is a gift God has given us. But do you understand that once you receive this beautiful gift, the gospel of Jesus Christ, once he becomes your Lord and Savior, you have an obligation upon you. Now, it doesn't mean you have to make yourself suffer, okay? But what, in what ways has following Jesus inconvenienced you? The testimony of Christ, how has that caused you to suffer? So Paul's statement, as a prisoner of the Lord, it shows that Paul has a unique view on the gospel of Christ, and that is, it will cost me. It will cost me. Therefore, I don't just add it to my already happy life and go, isn't this wonderful? I have this gospel of Jesus now. He recognizes it's going to cost him, and in his case, it really did. It cost Paul his life. Ultimately, Paul dies as a martyr for his Christian faith. Now, I'm not saying he's calling all of us to do that, but what I do recognize is what Paul understands. He, say, he, rec he recognizes, I'm not a prisoner to Rome. I'm not a prisoner to the Jewish people. I mean, literally, yeah, he is. But he says, no, I'm a prisoner to the Lord. I'm not in these chains because of Rome. I'm in these chains because of Jesus. And there's a big difference. It was a choice that he was positioning himself under Christ. Now, here's the reason that's important. We're going to be a prisoner of something. Do you guys understand that? We're going to be a prisoner of something. We're either going to follow, because what's basically a prisoner? Somebody who's under the command of another. I mean, that's basically what a prisoner is. You're under the command of something. And Paul recognizes he's not under the command of Rome. He's under Jesus. We are not under the command of this world or our culture or our own selfish desires. The gospel reminds us if we are ever inconvenienced or under any control, it's the Lord's. And he places himself there by choice. What he's stressing is the cost of discipleship. Look, we cannot get a free ride in the body of Christ. The gospel costs us something. And so Paul speaks from that perspective. Why can he do that? Because he is doing it. How many want somebody speaking to you about how to do something when they've had the experience, right? So you want somebody to talk to you about the grief you're going through. You want to know somebody who's experienced that kind of grief. So if he's saying, I urge you to be a prisoner, what if he was sitting at the, you know, the 34th floor in the presidential suite of the Roman hotel, sipping cocktails, going, hey, I'm a prisoner, <laughs> you know, so just kind of suffer with Jesus for me. 
you'd go, yeah, right. You're not, you don't even get it, Paul. You're so disconnected from what we're talking about. No, he says, I'm right there in it, and I'm calling you to this. The gospel's going to cost you something. It cost me my life. He goes on, Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So not only does he give us a position to assume that we're to become prisoners for Jesus, but now he also gives us a way to live and a way to serve. What, what is that way? He says to live in a way worthy or to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. So what calling have you received? Some of you are going, Kelly, I'm not like a pastor. I'm not like a missionary. What are you talking about? Those are the people that are called. The calling that Paul is talking about is something we've all experienced if you're a follower of Jesus. The call is your salvation. That's what he's talking about. Live in a way or walk, which means every day, live in a way that is worthy of of your salvation. So that word worthy is the same word we get our word worth, okay? What is something worth? The actual Greek word has to do with a scale or a balance. So back in Greek and Roman cultures, when you went to buy something, they would use scales. And on one side of the scale was a measure. That was the cost of what it is you wanted to buy. On the other side, you put your currency. And when the scales balanced, you had the amount of money needed to buy it. What Paul is saying is you need to live your life in a manner that is in balance with your salvation. So how great was your salvation? What was the cost of your salvation? How beautiful is your salvation to you? right? He's saying you need to live your life in a manner that is in balance with your calling, with your salvation. But here's the thing. Some of us, we really value our salvation, but we hardly give anything in the way we live our life. And you're living your lives out of balance. You have this great salvation, but you're doing nothing with it. There are others who haven't experienced that great salvation, and you're living your life in total contrast to that salvation. What he's saying is, no, we got to live your life in a manner worthy of it. What does that mean? What did that salvation cost? The life of Jesus on the cross? What does he ask of us or command of us of disciples? That every day we're to do what? We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. What is that? That is living your life in a manner worthy of your salvation. So what is your salvation worth to you? Are you living in a way that shows how valuable that is to you? And you know how I know the value of our salvation? I see what Jesus did. I see how he lived, and I go, that's what I need to do. And he lived on mission. Paul lived on mission. Peter lived on mission. These were people who did exactly what we're talking about. But a lot of us, we have this great, great salvation, yet we give so little to it. Here's something you have to understand. One of these days, followers of Jesus, one of these days, we're going to give an account before Christ for how you have lived your life in contrast to such a great salvation. And some of us are going to have nothing but our salvation. I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. That's what I want to hear. But friends, we have to live our life and serve in a way, in a manner that is worthy of our great 
salvation. And then he unpacks what that looks like. How do, we, how do we live a life worthy of his salvation? So we go on now. I'm skipping a few things there, Bill. Just stay with me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He continues. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. How do you live a life worthy of the call? He shows us. He says, there's an attitude you have to adopt. There's an attitude you have to adopt. And he spells out what that attitude looks like us. And these, really, these attitudes that he lists are a product of our new attitude in Christ. A little bit later in Ephesians 4, same chapter, he says this, Ephesians 4.20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. You remember your old self before Jesus? Because there's supposed to be a new self now. But remember that old self? He says you put that off when you came to Jesus, and, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And we know what that's like. Our old life would always undo us. It would always bring us regret and shame and harm and all those things that we know and, and, and others as well. But then he says this, but be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be made like or created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This new attitude means there are ways that you will live. And and why this is important is in this calling we all have, our salvation, we do this together as a church family. We have a mission together as a church, and we need to live this way with each other. But how many of you have been in a church where you left or somebody left because of interpersonal relationships. See, here's the thing. The church is made up of, well, we're all called people. And guess what? None of us are perfect. None of us are. We're supposed to be becoming more and more like Jesus, but how many you know, sometimes that is not the way it looks in a church setting. It can look dysfunctional. It can look crazy as people do stuff that just hurts other people. And friends, what he's saying is, this isn't, this isn't the way we should be doing life together on mission. So he gives us the sense that when you were saved, you had a new mindset that produced new attitudes. And what those attitudes looked like, he said, is humility. That's the first one he said. What I think is interesting is that he attacks the ego first. He talks about things like your pride, the way you view yourself. So he attacks the ego first. Why? Because that's the thing that has to die. That's the thing that has to become submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And then he speaks to what it looks like in community. But he attacks the person first. Well, it is an attack. But he addresses the issue of the self first. He says you have to be humble. What is humility? It's basically a viewpoint. It's, it focuses on how you think. It means having a lowness or a lowliness of mind. What does that mean? Rather than being proud or conceited or arrogant, I'm going to be humble, which actually is the attitude of a slave. Now, the Greek and Roman cultures hated this kind of mindset because there were actual real slaves in the culture who were working for people. And the goal of a slave, or at least the job of a slave, is to do whatever your master says to do. So the slave's not thinking about themselves 
by their job description. They're thinking about the need of somebody else. That is the word that is used in this idea of humility, and that's why the Ephesian church pushed away from it. They're like, nobody wants to be that kind of person. That's a lack of self-respect. Why wouldn't I think about my own interests first? Because Paul says, no, you can't do that. You put away arrogance. You put away this idea of being conceited, and you begin to think about others. What is true humility? It is basically when we decide to put Christ first, others second, and ourselves last. That's humility. In fact, our example is Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Listen to what it says. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. So he wants us to consider ourselves, but we're considering others first. And we're considering them actually more important than ourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be that as of Christ Jesus. And he goes on, I won't take time to read it, but then he goes on to say what that attitude looked like, how Jesus humbled himself to the point of death. He said, your interest, Father, is greater than my interest. The interest of the world, those around me, is greater than my own personal comfort. I am going to humble myself. That's humility. And that's appropriate within the body of Christ. Why? Because when that's our mindset, we're looking about how to serve each other, how to serve our community, how to serve Christ, and we get ourselves out of the way. Why is that important? Because when we get ourselves in the way, that's when we have relational discord. It's about my preference. It's about my way, not yours. And that's where trouble comes in the church, instead of being humble. Then he says to be gentle. What's gentleness? Uh, Another word in some translations is meekness. It sounds a lot like weakness, right? But you know what gentle actually is? The word that forms gentle is a Greek word that's used to talk about power that is under control. So for example... In the medicine world, this word would be used of a medicine that would cure an inflamed wound. It was an element that had power within control that would soothe a wound. It was also used of when you would tame a wild beast, perhaps a horse or a donkey. When that happened, that beast became gentle. In other words, the power that that beast has, as significant as that power is, is now under your control. That is gentleness. It's the same word that was used when they would harness the power of wind and turn it into a means to create help or to leverage that power to be used for something else. That's the same word. So when Paul says that we're to be gentle, it's not like all of a sudden we're wimps. What he's saying is each of us have power. Each of us have a sense of authority. But gentleness is when you place that authority under control. And now you use it for the benefit, not of yourself, but of others. That is gentleness. And we need that. We need your power under control within the church setting and within our community to advance Christ's mission. When that happens, we're not asserting ourselves. Because when that happens, that's when it's like, Power struggles within the church, and those are never fun. They are never fun. But gentleness is power under the control of the Holy Spirit to accomplish a mission together. Then he talks about uh, patience. How many need some of that, right? Don't pray for it. Just cautioning you. You pray for patience, 
It gets tested through the school of hard knocks, all right? I'm just telling you, that's the reality. But what is patience? It's basically the idea of forbearance, the ability to endure over time the wrongs of somebody else. In fact, you might say it this way, the ability to handle one's faults and failures and refusing to avenge wrongs. And that believers are called to be patient with one another. Why is that going to be important? Because when we're bored together like this all the time, serving, and we're alongside each other serving in mission, you're going to do something to make somebody else upset. It happens. But then we choose to not be upset. We choose to be patient with each other. They may not do it like you would do it, but we're patient with them. And then he says to have tolerant love, which is said this way, bearing with one another in love is the term that's used there. What that means basically is tolerant love. That means, again, a willingness to forgive and sympathize with somebody else, especially when you're working alongside them, to put up over a long time. Why? Because we need, we're not, none of us are perfect, right? So we need to be able to be patient and forbearing with each other. So those are just a few of the things. He talks about unity, which is so critical for the church, that we're united. How do we get united? First of all, when we're all under the control of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not going to cause discord in the church. That's not one of the fruit of the Spirit is discord, okay? Harmony is part of the, and unity is part of the work of the Spirit. But secondly, when we're all about his mission and not our own, we become united under that mission. And he says, you have to be united. You want to be effective, we all come under the control of the Holy Spirit and advance the mission of Jesus in your church setting. The bond of peace is the idea of us becoming one. Then he talks about it, Ephesians 4, 4. Look what he says. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Did anybody get the secret word hidden throughout that whole entire passage? It's one, 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 one. That's what he's saying. We as the body of Christ should take our cue from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. He uses each of them in this classification of what it looks like to be united. One, one, one. We're not, in fact, the church is down the road. Guess what? We're actually one under the umbrella of Christ's mission and the truth of the gospel. And then we are one with them a unique expression, but we are one in our community alongside them, serving the mission of Christ Jesus. But although the body is one, it is also diverse. And this is the part I think that gets us all messed up when it comes to how we do church. Let me show you, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, there's that word again, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. What's he talking about here? What is this grace? Yeah, your salvation? We already talked about that. This grace is different. What he's talking about here is an individual gift to exercise. An individual gift to exercise. So while the body is supposed to be one, in our unity, God in his wisdom allows this beautiful diversity that each of you brings something to the body of Christ that you are to do. An individual gift that is meant to be exercised. But do you know what it is? Do you know why you're a part of the body of Christ? Because your gift is not sitting in these seats. Your gift is meant to be exercised. And what I love about what God's trying to do is he says, yes, I know you're all uniquely gifted differently, but in your differentness, 
there can still be a oneness because your different pieces come together to make the one body of Christ who has one mission to accomplish in our community, to see people come to know Jesus. So Christ gave different gifts to different kinds of people. Not one person has all the gifts, but everybody's got something to bring to the table. And then he talks about some of those. In Ephesians 4.11, he moves on. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. So he names some of the gifts given to the church. I happen to be pastor-teacher. That's my gift. My gift to the church is to do what I do here. But why? Why do we have these leaders? He goes on. To equip his people for works of service. So Christ gave leaders to the church not to say, oh, look at us. We are so important. No, we have a job. And if we don't do our job, the church never grows. So we're to equip Christ followers within our local community to exercise your individual part that makes up the body of Christ and helps us become effective. So one of the rallying cries, by the way, behind the Reformation. Remember the Reformation? Some of you don't know your history. I understand that's, that's fine. But it was a big deal to become the kind of church we are today. And the rallying cry was everyone, every member is a minister. It's not just the sacred priests and all this hierarchy of leadership. No, everybody is a minister. In fact, 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says it this way. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Later on in 1 Peter 4, he says this, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. As faithful stewards of God's grace, there's that gift, that grace word again, in its various forms. So do you know what the best spiritual gift is? I know this might be a loaded question. You know what the best spiritual gift is? It's the one you have and the one you employ. That's the best one. The one you have and the one you employ for the purpose of God's mission. None of us has the corner on the market when it comes to the gifts. We all need each other. But my job, specifically as a leader, Pastor Rob's job, our lay leadership, their role is to equip you to find your place and do your part. And when that happens, then this next piece begins to take place, Ephesians 4.12. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of the people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every aspect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What's he talking about? There is a goal, friends, that we have to achieve. There's a goal, and that goal, yeah, the mission of Jesus, certainly, but in the, in the process of that grand mission, there's a goal. And you know what it is? The body of Christ, his church, might be built up. 
What does that mean? That certainly means health and growth and establishing more people following Jesus and serving him, united in our faith, united in understanding of who Jesus is, maturing believers who are full of Christ, and because of that, serving his mission in our individually assigned way. So here's the truth. All of us come here on Sundays or whenever you come, and you might not feel like you have it all together. I get it. There are some times I come here on a Sunday morning, and I know I ain't got it all together. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I, I have a life. And we come here sometimes, each of us, we feel like, man, I, don't, I can't do anything for this church because I don't have it all together. I get it. I think we could all feel those moments when it's like, I don't have it all. Don't ask me to do anything, Kelly, because I don't have it all together. You're right. Probably not. I don't. But together, we have it all. I may not have it all together, and you might feel like what you have to bring isn't all that because you don't have it all together. I understand. But together, we have it all. What does that mean? I can't do this alone, but together, we have all that we need. I believe that Christ uniquely places people within a context of his church body for a purpose serve his mission. And when we come together and mobilize our gift in community under the leadership of the church where he has given us leaders to equip, then what happens is the church becomes healthy and grows. So whose responsibility is church growth? It's a fair question to ask. Whose responsibility is church health and growth? Well, Jesus said in Matthew, he will build his church. And I'm so glad he's passionate for his church, but guess what he still needs? people. He says, we're living stones. He's not about buildings. In fact, the church, and we'll talk about this next week, um, because the church has seemed to become kind of this escape from the world, where we kind of come and be our Christian selves and be with fellow Christians and feel good about ourselves and escape the world and maybe get a little bit of help before we have to go back out into the world again. And we have this weird view of the church as being an escape from the world when, when Jesus initiated in Acts is a church that would engage the world on mission. That's the point. But how do we do that? When each part finds its place. That last verse, verse 16, is the key. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by its every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Church growth, it's on you. It's on me equipping the saints, you, for the works that God has you to do. So let's think about it. What part do you play? The church grows healthy and effective when you find your place and you do your part. My goal for 2019 is this, 25 new volunteers, 25 unique new volunteers exercising their individual gift for the body of Christ. That means not volunteers who are currently serving. Here's what I know. Some of you who are currently serving, you will say yes to something else. That's not what I'm interested in. 25 uniquely new volunteers serving the Mission Neighborhood Church. And by the way, it may not be within the walls of this church. I have referred some folks who go through the Find Your Place class to serve in our community because that's how they're uniquely wired. And if they felt like they had to do it in here, they'd get frustrated. But the mission is bigger than a building. In fact, the mission is never about a building. These gatherings are important, but they're equipping gatherings to send. 
right? 25, but here's the deal. That would move us to 35% of our church serving. I would love 50% or more of our church serving, but my goal is reasonable, 25 new volunteers. But here's the thing. I want at least half of those new volunteers serving our children. The reason that's important is that generation we're missing, that 25 to 34-year-old, guess where they're at in their season of life for many of them? Young families, they have babies, they have toddlers, they have some kids in elementary age. We need people who will step up and provide an environment where those families feel like they can come and their kids are well, safe, and, and, and safe. And we do that every week, but here's the deal. Some of you that are working our preschool, you know what it's like. You work multiple times a month because Gail calls you and says, I need you to help me. What if we attended one and served one? There would always be plenty in our preschool, neighborhood kids, in the nursery, with our youth. Not to mention greeters and ushers and all the things that come together to make the church whole, our media team, all the pieces. But I want 12 to 13 of our new ones to focus specifically toward children. So if you've been waiting for a personal invite to get involved in serving children, this is your personal invite. Come to the Find Your Place class. Let's hone in on what that gift and ability is and how we can best place that in the body of Christ. That's the goal of that class. Today at noon, there's an opening for you. Let's pray. Father, all of us need to recognize that the mission of the church will be as successful as the members of the church carrying out this mission. And Jesus, when you left the church into the hands of your disciples, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you, you saw the power that could be unleashed as people found their place and did their part. And here we are, almost 2,000 years of this side of history of your death and resurrection, and the church is still thriving because people have taken this message seriously. But God, I'm concerned that in these last couple of decades, we have seen people not stepping up to serve. So I pray you would challenge the hearts of those today in this room, maybe who have just been coming and consuming and leaving. They've got a gift to share, to advance your mission. So I pray they would find their place and do their part this year. And give us in leadership the wisdom to rightly lead and equip and direct. Because you want your church to grow healthy and effective. That happens when we each find our place and do our part within that mission. So speak to us today. In Jesus' name. Amen.